This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, September the 28th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Welcome to the show and coming up on the show today, you'll hear from a new contributor on the show, Arno Kopecki. We'll explore the influence of a new leader, Pierre Polyev, on the Conservative Party and how that might impact their climate change policy. Caitlin Kuzler describes TACO, an adaptive kitchen knife developed by students. Join in for a roundtable discussion on some of the positive and negative experiences when it comes to accessibility and traveling. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day looking abroad. A series of leaks on pipelines in Europe are raising concerns. Sabotage. Well, Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen says she could not rule it out after three leaks were detected over the past day on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. Anders Puck Nielsen, a researcher at the Royal Danish Defence College, says when such a number of leaks on two pipelines happen within 24 hours. It's strange. It is so strange that you get to wonder and ask yourself, could this be sabotage? Nielsen poses another question. Could there be an advantage for Russia in trying to destabilize the European energy market even further? I'm Charles Duladesma. And in a related story, the exodus from Russia continues following President Vladimir Putin's call for conscription into military service. Brett Klinet has the latest. I'm at the border crossing from Russia into Georgia, where over the last week, thousands of Russians have been making the days-long journey to get across to avoid being called up to fight in the war in Ukraine. These people, many of them young men, were checked at the border to make sure they are not on the draft list. Some of them have travelled for two days on foot. They're exhausted, they're relieved and have no plans on from here. But they say they had no choice but to leave, especially with reports that Russia will cut off borders. One man I spoke to said he left because he doesn't want to kill anyone and doesn't want to be killed himself. Brett Clenet, ABC News at the Russian-Georgian border. Coming back to North America, dealing with some climate issues, of course, Atlantic Canada continuing to clean up after Hurricane Fiona. Well, the entire island of Cuba lost power after Hurricane Ian knocked out its power grid. Donna Warder has the story. Cuba's Electric Union says authorities are working to gradually restore power to Cuba's 11 million people. Power initially was knocked out to about 1 million people in Cuba's western provinces, but later the entire grid collapsed. Ian made landfall as a Category 3 storm on the island's western end, devastating Pinar del Rio province. Authorities are still assessing the damage. No fatalities have been reported. I'm Donna Water. Ian is now turning to Florida's Gulf Coast. Reporter Morgan Norwood has more. Ian once again taking a turn, now setting out towards Sarasota. Though all of the Florida peninsula faces significant impacts in Cape Coral, where residents are bracing for up to 12 feet of storm surge. In nearby Fort Myers, residents scrambling to board up. But despite the slight shift, the Tampa area not out of the woods just yet. The city still in the danger zone with several areas under mandatory evacuation orders. 
I was talking to a friend who lives on the Atlantic coast of Florida last night as she was evacuating eight hours north into Georgia, as uh, folks near the Atlantic side were also told to get the heck out of Dodge. Coming back to Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau visited areas in PEI affected by Hurricane Fiona. Trudeau reflected on how the climate crisis has impacted his entire time as Prime Minister. Unfortunately, from you know, my, my first years as Prime Minister, the Fort McMurray fires to the uh, floods in BC most recently to everything in between, we're having to react to uh, a level of urgencies and emergencies that are going to require, yes, strong response, but also being proactive about making sure we're, we're creating even more res- resilient infrastructure and communities. Infrastructure Minister Dominique Leblanc says both government disaster aid programs and private insurance need to be modernized for the reality of climate change. He says these are conversation these conversations are needed because significant storms are becoming more frequent. There's sort of two streams of conversation rebuilding resilient, adaptable public infrastructure that's safe and usable for communities, uh, and then looking at the best way to ensure that private losses are appropriately protected. The Federal Provincial Disaster Assistance Program requires provinces to cover uninsured losses up to a certain amount before federal dollars kick in. And in a related story, a new report looks at the costs of climate change and climate events in Canada. Rob Westgate has some of those numbers. The Canadian Climate Institute says its analysis of the costs of a changing climate suggests severe weather will cost $5 billion a year in direct damages, and that's by 2025. It'll be $17 billion by 2050. Those figures balloon when you add in economic losses, when severe weather forces businesses to close, washed out roads and railways disrupt supply chains, or extreme heat curbs productivity. The report suggests that by 2025, severe weather will take a $25 billion bite out of the economy and between 78 and $101 billion by 2050. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. Let's pivot to some conversation around travel. The head of a union representing customs and immigration officers says chronic staffing shortages mean long waits at the border will not necessarily disappear when the use of the ArriveCan app becomes optional. Mark Weber is the national president of the Customs and Immigrations Union. Weber told the House of Commons committee the government needs to hire more staff to keep people and goods flowing across the border. What I urge the government and the agency to do now is to turn their attention to the severe deficit in personnel afflicting border services throughout the country. The reality is really bleak. Uh, The agency needs thousands of more officers if it wishes to fulfill its mandate. Travelers will no longer be required to use ArriveCan as of Saturday. And that's inbound travellers. What about outbound travellers? Rising costs are influencing Canadians' winter travel plans. Karen Rebo shares some of that analysis. As the cold months approach, Snowbird Advisor President Stephen Fine says some snowbirds are opting for a shorter travel period or they're eyeing different destinations due to the rising cost of everything combined with a weak Canadian dollar. Fine says snowbirds will have a lot more to consider this coming winter as the price of accommodations, groceries and dining out have all risen. He adds snowbirds may opt for more cost-effective destinations outside the U.S., including Mexico, Costa Rica and Belize, and they may do a 
a four-month stay rather than the usual six. The loonie is trading this morning at less than 72.5 cents U.S. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. And we'll revisit some travel talk in the daily polls in just a moment, as well as later in the show with Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore. But let's get to the results of yesterday's daily polls first. You can find us at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. On Facebook yesterday, we asked you, how do you plan on helping victims of Hurricane Fiona in Atlantic Canada? 49% of you said money, 17% of you said clothes, 17% of you said supplies, and 17% of you said other. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Is there anything stopping you from traveling internationally? Is it cost? Is it accessibility concerns? Is it the pandemic? Or is it nothing at all? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Of course, time could also be on that thing. You know, plenty of you have actual full-time real jobs that I mean you can't just go hop on a big silver bird whenever you please. Let's first go to Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, what is stopping you from traveling internationally? Yeah, I, I think uh, the nothing at all, nothing at all, nothing at all with the reference to Ned Flanders. Uh, um, I, I, For me, I have no worries, qualms about traveling internationally. I'm actually set to do so at the end of October. I'm going down south for a week in the sun, so I, I'm looking forward to that. My biggest uh, uh, travel, I guess, uh, restriction in general is finding people to travel with. And, and as you mentioned too, Dave, it's having the time to travel. Uh, you know, we uh, working full-time jobs, you know, as you can't on a whim go and pick up and, and travel everywhere that you want to do it. I, I would love to. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I would say nothing really is uh, stopping me from traveling internationally. Now, of course, you know, there are certain things like cost and accessibility for certain locations, but I think that's always been the case regardless. You know, it's you just pick and choose where you want to go, but overall to travel internationally, nothing's stopping me. What yeah, about you? It's funny. I, I pick the options here. I'm the one who writes them on the on the yeah. sheet, and uh, time would be my number one thing. I, I, I just don't have time. I, I work I work at least 40 hours a week. I work at least six days a week, every week. So uh, I'm not exactly uh, prime and ready to be making moves and uh, not to pull the curtain back too much. I'm unavailable and incapable of taking vacation time, at least into mid to late November. So uh, yeah, time is the thing that's stopping me from being able to uh, travel. Let's bring in Eliza Rocco. Eliza, what do you think? What's stopping you or what could be stopping you from traveling internationally? It's been various things over the course of the last few years. Um, I had, I haven't really been much of a traveler in my life when I was younger. I, I come from a family of six, so it was not something yeah. that we could afford. Tough, tough to get everybody on the move, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I was in university, and I was a broke university student. Um, now and you then, work in media, so you're just as broke. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the pandemic happened. I had a bunch of travel plans um, that summer, the first summer of the pandemic, and obviously they all got canceled. Um, but today I would have to put myself in the nothing category because I am finally, finally planning some travel. I don't Ooh. know when, and I don't necessarily know exactly where yet but it will be somewhere and it will be somewhere early next year in the corporate world they call that ideation you're in the ideation phase <laughs> exactly Just having exactly. a little brainstorm <laughs> and looking at some maps thinking where do i want to go it's, it's a push and pull with me and my boyfriend mm. we want the shopping but we want the warmth mm. so 
we got to find something that gives us both. Maybe Miami. Arizona. Oh. Yeah, Arizona. Nice Direct flights from T.O. I'm telling you, lots of shopping. It's America through and through. <laughs> Although there's like snakes and scorpions. and I know. like snakes. Snakes are cute. Okay. All right. Then you're all set. Arizona it is. I'll help Can't you plan wait. the trip. That's Eliza Rocco weighing in on our daily poll. You can do the same at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Facebook and of course feel free to jump into the comments here as well. Don't just don't just click, don't just smash an option here. Hit that reply button, hit that retweet button, hit that comment button. Get involved, get in the mix, mix it up on the daily poll. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. He has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, there's showers with up to 10 millimeters expected and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour with a high of 20. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 21. In Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers this morning and a high of 18. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of showers this morning and 14 is the high. In Toronto, it's a cloudy with a chance of showers as well this morning, but 15 is the high. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's sunny and a high at 12. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's sunny this morning, but then it's turning to a mix of sun and clouds and possible rain or thunderstorms this afternoon with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 18. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, the sunshine continues. It's sunny with a high of 29. Oof, the bacon in the prairies. Oh, just wait, Dave. It continues as we go along in the prairies. Now to Calgary, Alberta. Sunny as well, becoming a mix of sun and clouds this afternoon. It's also a high of 29. And then when we make our way up to Edmonton, Alberta, it's sunny as well, and it's also a high of 29 there too. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers this morning but nine is the high. In Vancouver, BC, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers in the afternoon, and 18 is the high. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's cloudy and expected to have showers this morning, with 17 being the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, you all know we love talking about food on this show, but what about making food? Can that be more inclusive? Well, students at McMaster University developed an assistive kitchen tool called Taco, and you'll learn all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. A team of students from McMaster University have recently won the Canadian James Dyson Award for their assistive kitchen tool called Taco. Joining me to tell you more about it is Caitlin Kuzler, one of the winning team members based in Hamilton. Hey, good morning, Caitlin. Great to chat with you. Thank you for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So let's start here with the big broad question. What is Taco and what does it look like? Uh, so basically, Taco is a kitchen um, cutting. It's an assistive tool for the kitchen. Um, it's basically 
yeah, I, I guess you can see it on the screen there. Um, so basically the knife goes in between the two guides and it prevents um, kind of lateral motion of the blade so that you can't slip and accidentally cut yourself. Where did the idea come from and what was the development like for you and the team? Yeah, so uh, one of my colleagues, um, he volunteers at a long-term care home um, and works with um, a woman who has Parkinson's. And so she was having some difficulty, um, you know, maintaining her independence in the kitchen. Um, and we thought, you know, it, it would be um, really great if we could uh, develop something that would help her um, and make it safer for her to, to cut things and prepare food for herself. Um, and so our development process um, was about four months. And so we started with a small, um, a small little guide that kind of resembled a taco. Um, and we tested it out and, and found that it was just too small and, and moved around too much. And, and so we went through a bunch of different iterations um, to attach it to the cutting board to um, make it work with different size cutting boards, work with different knives, um, and just make it make it um, adaptable to to any any kitchen. I, I want to go a little bit deeper into what Beatrice's experience was cutting vegetables before taco in comparison to the after, because as you tell us a bit about that, we're actually going to show some B roll that that you provided to us of Beatrice going through the cutting phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um, she didn't have great control, um, so she kind of had to um, use all of the strength and, and control that she had to kind of saw through um, the, uh, the vegetables that we had her cutting. Um, and with taco, um, it allowed the knife to kind of stay in, in one spot, so, so that was less effort for her um, to kind of concentrate on, and she could just focus on um, putting all of her force into a straight downwards motion um, and it kind of just sliced through like, like you would expect. You and your colleagues identified a clear need here. What does it mean to you and the team knowing that what you've created, what you've designed can have a real impact on people's lives? Yeah, it, it's been, it's been really special, um, especially having people reach out to us and, and um, you know, tell us that, it could have a big impact in their lives. Um, we had um, a blind fellow reach out and, and you know, ask if, if it would be helpful um, for him and for sure, you know. Um, yeah, it's, I don't think we ever really imagined um, how big of an impact it would have on people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been really special. Sticking with the feelings question as i mentioned off the top you guys won an award for this design it's not just something that's helping people it's been recognized by a massive organization so what did it feel like amongst the team when you guys found out that you won uh there was a lot of disbelief um we did not imagine um that we would have won i think we were up against some pretty um interesting inventions and and yeah, it, 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 it took probably a good week to, to, for it to kind of settle in that, that we had won. It must be really affirming, too, because as you say, this took months, right? Four months is no, is no short period of time for students to be dedicating their time to a design. So it's all the more congratulations to know that that work was affirmed with recognition. And by the way, that's just a regional win. There's, there's more opportunities down the road here. So where does the competition go from here? What else are you guys eligible to win? 
Yeah, so, so the next step is um, the international level. Um, so we won the Canadian, um, the national award. And so now we're up against winners from other countries all around the globe. Um, and hopefully uh, we make that top 20. We should find out next month. Um, and from there, there's just more um, monetary prizes and more um, support so that we can develop our product further. Regardless of the outcome of these Dyson competitions, what do you and the team hope is the future for Taco? We really want to um, get this product to market so that we can help people. And, and so um, we've begun the um, patent process and we have also um, reached out to some manufacturers. And so we're going to start manufacturing uh, hopefully in the next couple of months and, and really kind of um, narrow in on a, on a good design that, that um, is accessible for people. And by the end of the year, we should have um, kind of a, a solid design and, and we'll go from there. Well, Caitlin, many congratulations to you and the team. Best of luck with these uh, next stages of the competition, but even more so best of luck with these patents and the continued development and bringing this to market. It seems like you and your colleagues have thought up a really good idea and a very elegant solution to a common problem. So thank you for the work that you're doing and best of luck moving forward. Thank you very much. That's Caitlin Kuzler, one of the students behind the TACO team who won this year's James Dyson Award for Design and Engineering. Coming up next, we catch up with Shani Saravanamuthu. She'll talk about her experience for the process of wedding planning and preparation. Oh, Shani's got some news to share with you. But before we get to that, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. Canada's main stock index fell to a new low this year, while U.S. markets were mixed after a volatile day of trading. Toronto's TSX index gave back 19 points to 18,307, its lowest level since February of last year. New York's Dow Jones average lost 125 points and the Nasdaq gained 26. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index dropped 397 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.52 cents U.S. Experts say high inflation and a strong U.S. dollar will weigh heavily on Canadian snowbirds this winter. Snowbird advisor President Stephen Fine said some are opting for a shorter travel period or they're eyeing different destinations due to the rising cost of everything combined with a Canadian dollar that traded for under 73 cents U.S. yesterday. He adds snowbirds may opt for more cost-effective destinations outside the U.S., including Mexico and Belize, and do a four-month stay rather than a typical six. From the Canadian press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. If you were to power rank major life events, where would you rank getting married? It has to be top three, right? At the very least, top five. Your spouse would be super mad at you if you said it wasn't top five. It's a celebration of love. And it's a party with your friends and family. Come on, it's a big deal. A big deal that takes a ton of planning. Let's talk about that with Shiny Saravanamuthu. Hey, good morning, Shiny. Good morning. So we're talking about this for a very good reason, because you have a bit of news to share, and I may have given it away in the intro, <laughs> but what's the news? 
I got engaged this month. Hey, hey, hey. congratulations, Shiny. That is amazing news. How are you feeling? Good. It still doesn't feel... I'm still not used to saying fiance, if I can say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel you. So I've got a couple specific questions for you, but let's start with a general one. Even though it's super early in the process, how are you feeling about the planning and preparation of this wedding? So you guys know I'm like a little OCD. Um, Let's just say I started planning before (laughs) the proposal happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I started early. I think I started in like June. Yeah. Okay. So you had a sense. You had a sense this was coming down the pipeline. All right. Well, let's do a little bit of role playing here. I'm going to pretend to be a nosy relative, Dave Saravanamuthu. So, first and foremost, have you picked a date? Yes, we have. So, uh, it's going to be in September of 2023. So, next year. Okay. So, you've given yourself some time, you've given yourself some run up. How big a wedding are we talking about? Do you have a number of guests involved? Do you have the number in mind? So uh, get ready to get shocked. So um, as South Asians, we have several days, right? So the actual religious ceremony of us getting married will have about 700 people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's us bringing it down. Uh, Yeah. And the reception, we're going to make it much, much smaller with just intimate, close family and close friends. So even that is still a lot where I think we're looking at like 350 for the reception. So oh my goodness, I don't even think I know 700 people uh, because we come from big families. So yeah, uh, yeah. we yeah. And, and like I mentioned off the top, it's a big deal, right? A wedding is a big deal. It's an important celebration for families. So you want to make sure people are included. So this is where I think you just identified that with the size and scale of this wedding and the fact that it's going to be taking place over a number of days. What's mm-hmm. it like going through the venue process? Because you probably have to pick multiple venues. And I've heard that because of the pandemic, there was a lot of postponing of weddings. So venue hunting has become quite difficult. Yeah, I think we're kind of got lucky because I feel like 2022 is where a chunk of weddings happen because with all the postponing and everything, next year is mostly um, people who got engaged this year. And so that's why we kind of started planning our wedding before he even proposed because we didn't want to lose out on vendors that we really wanted. I think that's the number one tip that I would give uh, brides and grooms. Obviously, you go through to go to other weddings and you realize what vendors you do like and you don't. So if you do want to make sure you get the vendors that you do want, do reach out to them earlier. Like that's what I did. I'm like, well, we're not engaged yet, but like we were we're going to start planning our wedding. How much of a heads up do you need? Or like, how's your next year looking like? So just to get an idea if those vendors are going to be available. So for us, um, we kind of spoke to our main vendors first to see what, dates worked for all of them that they can all be there and also because i'm hindu we actually had to ask the priest what dates works for both of us where the stars align for us to get married so i only had like two possible weekend dates that worked for both of us which that, happened to be september that's a little limiting but i do like that i do yeah. like that hey let's yeah, make sure it's, from it's, an astro- astrological position we're in the right position yeah, so there's a specific time and date that I we we can get married that it works for both of our birth charts. So it's kind of interesting and very limiting, but it's interesting. But yeah, so uh, I definitely would say reach out to your vendors even before you have a wedding day just to get an idea of how their year is looking for when you're planning. What are you thinking about in regards to food? Sit down, buffet, a combination? 
So in our culture, we do buffet. Sit down does not work with our people. They are they they need their Tamil food. <laughs> they need their brown food. They need their spice, and they like to have variety of different foods to pick at. So uh, definitely doing buffet, uh, and like a cocktail pass around for the cocktail hours. Nice. Yeah, I know. I know not all South Asian cultures created the same, but I went to a Pakistani wedding a couple of years ago, and uh, it was a hybrid of buffet and sit down. That there oh, were nice. certain things being served to you at the table. There were also things that were on the table, but there was also a series of buffets, including mm-hmm. a dessert table, which was spectacular, but incredibly overwhelming. It's like 400 people descended upon the table. <laughs> dessert is a key component <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, no doubt no doubt about that one uh shiny what about this this is of course one of the great controversies amongst young people like yourself and myself although i'm not really young anymore dj or band dj dj yeah. why why dj i don't know i think it's just because i can know that everyone will like we'll enjoy it and like obviously within our community we have a dj that we all love and like i made sure he was available my wedding date literally depended on him um and so i and it's always a good time when like we know that dj is there so uh i'm i'm pretty confident that the, the dance floor will go on till 3 a.m so we're good <laughs> uh montreal wedding through and through yeah. uh shiny <laughs> Are you thinking something, I mean, I think this is sort of given away a little bit by the sheer size of this, but are you thinking about something a little bit more formal or something more casual slash do it yourself in terms of maybe the decor and the vibe? Yeah, so I think for me, I'm going to go very, I'm a more simple person. I'm not someone that likes things too blingy and extravagant. So I think there might be some DIY. I haven't decided if I want to do DIY centerpieces or just rent them out. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, Mind you, I have a lot of tables, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, But yeah, I'm still like in the planning process of those little details, like the decor and stuff are still little details to figure out. Uh, my goal is to have most of the big things done by year end. So next year I don't have to stress and run around in the winter. Uh, so that is my goal. I'll let you guys know if I keep up with that goal. <laughs> I, I, um, I sent you a note yesterday and I neglected to include this in the note in some areas that I might go with the question. But what are you thinking about in regards to the dress? I imagine, again, across multiple days that requires sort of multiple dresses. Yeah, so for us, on the day of the religious wedding, I actually have to wear two saris. One that I come in that my parents obviously uh, give to me and I wear on my wedding day. And then we have a part in the religious ceremony where our parents basically wash their hands of our responsibility and give it over to my fiancé and his family. So at that point, they give us a sari, which I have to go and change into, and I have to wear everything head to toe that my uh, fiancé's side of the family gives to me for my wedding day. So I go and change into that, and then I come back and get married. So on the wedding day, there's two saris. There's an outfit for the reception. There's an outfit for the like the henna night. So in total, a minimum four outfits. Minimum. With that much time on your feet, are you allowed any shoe changes in there, or is it going to be all heels all day? Yeah, I probably will wear Converse to my reception under my outfit. That is my plan. Still having a little bit of that rock and rolling and flair with Shiny, no (laughs) doubt. So, Shiny, those are the questions from my dude brain. You know, at the end of the day, I'm still just a basic dude. What did I miss? Mm -hmm. What are the other things that you're considering in this wedding planning? Well, as a cake artist, the cake is very important to me. 
So that's something I'm going to really like focus on the design and make sure I am not making my own cake. I will not do that to myself. Um, I am going to trust in someone that I have trusted in the years. Um, so that's something that's very important for a girl makeup and hair. I, that's like number one. You want to make sure that's important photographer because that's something tangible that you will have with you for the rest of your life of your mm. biggest day of life. Um, always go with someone that uh, you have either work with in the past or you know like you can work with and like everyone is comfortable around I think that's so important just because like we're gonna have our parents knowing our parents will be comfortable around the photographer also right so just um and I think over the years I've worked with some people so I've been lucky enough to be immersed in the wedding industry to know who I like working with and who I have a good vibe with but uh, just do like little mini sessions if you want to get to know uh, which photographer you even like if you've never worked with any in the past, just to get an idea of how you work and vibe with the photographer and then decide for a big day because they, they can be costly. So just work on mini sessions before you book your big photographer. Shiny, you mentioned something there, and I do have to apologize that I've never been able to tangibly connect these dots because I knew you were a cake artist, and I know that your Instagram is awesomely filled with your cake creations. <laughs> I didn't put together that you've probably been asked to design some cakes for weddings before. Am, am, yeah. I, am I wrong on that assumption? Or like, did I totally oh, I miss out on that? I have. I, have. I've, I think I've at least done 20 wedding cakes, minimum. Do you think yeah. that experience of being around so many weddings, whether it was sort of so tangibly or so present, has given you almost like a, an inside scoop of what you want to do with your own wedding? Yeah, and I think I've been so lucky that I got to work with so many other wedding ben vendors when I go set up cakes or like go to meetings with the, the bride and groom and stuff that I've been lucky in that sense that I've. I know a lot of vendors for the wedding, so I'm very grateful for that. So kind of a one-up in that sense. So yeah, and obviously do's and do's of what I would like for decor because I get to see the venues when I go drop off the cake. So mm. that's awesome. <laughs> One more question here and then I'll, then I'll let you go because I know you actually have work today. It's not just hanging out, talking weddings with me. I'm not just doing a little <laughs> wedding talk with Dave, uh, nosy relative Dave Saramadamuthu. Uh, are you guys going to hire a wedding planner or a wedding uh, coordinator the day of? Because I've been on weddings that have done either side of that and I feel like the ones that had a wedding coordinator had things go a teensy bit smoother. Yeah, definitely for the religious ceremony, I will have a coordinator because I need some, I need a third party there to guide the relatives and the, el the adults because they won't listen to us younger kids. <laughs> so I need someone to like guide to be the third person so they'll listen to them. So I definitely have that. And I have an MC event coordinator for the reception because that also is very needed. Mm. Well, so they do a lot of work. <laughs> well, Shiny, congratulations again. This is really wonderful news. I'm sure we'll be checking in with you and updating throughout this process, yeah. providing you're comfortable with us doing that. Yes. Um, but in the meantime, we wish you a wonderful work day. All the best to you. And we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Yes, sounds good. Take care. That is Shiny Saravanamuthu. You'll hear from Shiny again in a couple weeks for the Montreal Community Report. And I do want to remind you that, of course, you can check in with the show whenever you like via social media. And when you do, we expect you, we demand of you to answer our daily poll at Accessible Media Inc. on Twitter. That's not right. It's at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I'm still working on this. I apologize. This branding. You can't just change the branding on poor Dave and expect his brain to hold it. Muscle memory in the brain. The question we're asking you today, is there anything stopping you from traveling internationally? Is it the cost? Is it accessibility concerns? Is it the pandemic? Or is it nothing at all? And of course, maybe social media is not your bag. You can always reach out to us 
via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, and you can give us phone calls, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, Amy Amanti will be here. She's got the details on this year's Vancouver's Writers Festival. But first, dating apps are becoming a profitable business. See, maybe all that wedding talk was shiny. Got you thinking, man, I could use a partner. I wouldn't mind getting married. Well, those dating apps are becoming quite profitable. Michelle Franzen swipes right in Tech Trends. Lexi Cito is the head of Insights at Data AI. She says most popular dating apps are free, but many also offer paid subscription options, which give users access to more features. You can see who's already liked you, uh, which is pretty compelling. You can also um, sort of reverse if you accidentally swiped the wrong way on someone. And according to Data AI's new report, spending on those services in the first half of 2022 is up year over year. A collective $2.7 billion being spent on, on these subscriptions or these boosts or these features that give your profile a bigger presence. She says dating apps in general got more popular during the pandemic. Apps are that sort of de facto form or tool for dating now. Um, we used to think about online dating sites, but apps have really replaced them in a lot of ways. With Tech Trends, I'm Michelle Franzen, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. So far in the first hour of the show, we've gone down to Hamilton. We've headed down the 401 to land in Montreal for a bit. And now we head out to the wacky West Coast, Vancouver, British Columbia, to catch up with community reporter Amy Amanti. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Amy, unsurprisingly, you've got a lot of information about what's going on with arts and culture in the Vancouver neck of the woods. So let's start with the Tightrope Theatre in Vancouver, which is going to be hosting improv workshops for locals. So why did these workshops stick out to you? Oh, this is really interesting to me, Dave. So I've uh, been asked to be a part of a conservatory for tightrope theater impro, which is so interesting. I was like, hmm, is that a typo on their website? But they actually go by impro instead of improv. It's an old British term. It means the same thing. Um, so tightrope uh, is offering a conservatory. So I will now be on the stages playing uh, improv, which is so much fun. But one of the reasons why I thought this was so interesting is that they offer workshops to everybody. So I'm a blind guy taking some improv. There's another blind gal uh, doing some improv. I know a couple of blind uh, uh, gents in the area that are taking improv with different companies. So improv is really opening itself up to being more accessible to more communities. And one of the really interesting things that I thought about tightrope in terms of like getting in there and playing these games and learning about the basics of improv and high stakes and building characters and all those fun things is that they not only focus on the entertainment value, but they're focusing on a wellness and business value of improv. So for example, they have a, a, a improv workshop for people who are experiencing Parkinson's um, and people who are experiencing uh, mental illness. So they've got these, these different sort of workshops so that you can work through um, uh, with your disability and uh, celebrate your disability, but also be in a place where it's safe to explore given your various disabilities. And I thought that was really, really interesting uh, approach. As you mentioned, you're going to be part of this sort of conservatory. You're going to be a, a, a part of this process. What do you think 
offering an inclusive improv workshop looks like, or pardon me, impro workshop looks like? <laughs> impro, improv, you know, I, I potato, potato for me, Dave. Um, I think there's a couple of things um, that it does and that it, that it looks like. So certainly, as we know, for folks who are blind and partially sighted, improv is a very visual medium. Everything about it is visual, even from the uh, the applauding for the characters on the stage. So if you're playing a game and there's four characters or four players and uh, one of them has to win, they often just put a hand over, over the player's head and you clap for that person, right? And so it's like, well, if you want this person to win, clap. If you want this person to win, well, I don't know who it is that, uh, that, we're, that I'm voting for if I was even able to follow the game. So part of me being um, invested in this conservatory is how can we make some of these games as accessible as possible considering it's a very visual medium? Mm. So that's, you know, I'm in, I'm in a whole week two of a three-month process here, Dave. So it's early days, but we're just, <laughs> yeah, we're embarking on how it is that we bring in more verbal um, uh, in terms of our instructions and in terms of our sort of the format so that things that are dialogue-based are much more easy to follow. Improv is a subculture. I'm going to go out there mm -hmm. and say that right now. It's a subculture. It's sort of a subculture of the broader theater movement. And it feels like it comes in waves in terms of its popularity. Obviously, whose line is it anyway? In the mid to late yeah. 90s and early 2000s, really kind of burst it into a point where it was mainstream. There were high school improv teams everywhere competing provincially, nationally. It was a pretty wild scene, man. It was a scene. Where do you think improv is right now in regards to those ups and downs of waves and popularity? Do you know what's interesting? I don't think improv ever lost its popularity. I think it just, there, like you said, you know, like I was an improv uh, um, competitor in high school as well. But theater sports in general has been a giant um, professional league of folks who are competing, um, competing for your votes on stages, competing to entertain you. Uh, so I don't think it's ever really lost its popularity. In fact, here in Vancouver, we actually have an improv festival every September. So improv troops, this is where it gets interesting is there used to just be sort of like one improv theater that you would go to and now they're improv troops so a tightrope different nights of the week for like 10 or 20 bucks you can go and see for example an improv group um called queer prov and these are all a group of people from the queer community that are doing queer prov they have a, a an improv troupe that is very specific asian canadian so that they can tell their stories uh, in improv fashion and customize their games so um, I think what's happening is improv has become much more inclusive in how we tell the stories and who is represented on our stages. Well, this particular improv workshop runs Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. Thursdays, 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. And you can learn more by visiting tightropetheater.com, tightropetheater.com. And if I said that too fast, don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. It'll be available on the blog after the show, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. Let's jump over to the Vancouver Writers Festival of 2022. It's taking place this month. What are they going to be showcasing? Yeah, taking place from October 17th to 2023. It's the Writers Festival on Granville Island and uh, and in some other sort of little pockets of Metro Vancouver. And I think, you know, the Writers Festival is exactly what it sounds like. There are lots of 
presenters, lots of artists uh, and authors reading their books, um, uh, panel discussions with uh, authors, different opportunities to learn, uh, like writing workshops. So I'm going to be taking a couple of workshops about writing for the self and uh, writing for um, comedy, those kinds of things. So that'll be a really interesting workshop. And then there's one that um, that Vocalize doesn't need to describe because, well, it's all being read out loud anyways, but we're going to get a group of people to go to what's called the Literary Cabaret. And this is a couple of hours in the evening. You sit at kind of cabaret tables and you are listening to a bunch of authors. Some of them are, are well-known Canadian authors. Some are well-known international authors. Some are emerging authors. And they're just going to read excerpts from their books. And I think that that's... Um, you know, last year we uh, Vocal, I did a digital version of that, and we brought it to our almost live platform, and it was so well received. We thought, well, now that it's back in person, we better take a group. When we think about accessibility on a festival like this, what are some mm -hmm. of the considerations that they're keeping in mind? Well, uh, I'm actually working on their accessibility uh, roundtable group, so uh, I'm a little bit everywhere. But the, some of the things we talk about are things like sighted guide training, making sure that your venues have a little to no barriers in terms of stairs, uh, have accessible washrooms, that kind of thing, that staff are trained to understand how to have conversations with people with disabilities in a dignified way, you know, may, not making assumptions that everybody needs help, but maybe asking the question. We often talk about something called ask listen act sounds like three very simple rules of thumb right i like that i like that right? ask listen act ask listen and act ALA. Right? So a lot a lot of that is going on a lot of talk about language reducing ticket pricing uh having opportunities for people to have meetup locations because granville island is quite a complicated place to navigate oh, yeah. all sorts of things <laughs> even getting to granville island not super simple only a couple it's, only it's, a couple points of contact true. It's so it's so true, and there are a lot of um, like little theater venues uh, all over the island. So if you are doing a festival, the idea is is that you go for a day and you're doing like six different things in a day, right? So at two o'clock you're here, and at four o'clock you're there, and at six o'clock you're here, and eight o'clock you're there. And I don't know how I'm going to get to all those venues by myself. Well, I don't need to worry about that because um, because I'll have a guide that can walk me from venue to venue. I won't get lost. October 17th to 23rd, probably still nice enough outside to uh, eat a steak by the ocean between uh, performances. Writersfest.bc.ca, writersfest.bc.ca to learn more about that one. Actually, you know what? I'll give the phone number too because I know some of you folks out there email and you say, Dave, we don't like the internet. We like the phone. Okay, fine. <laughs> Here's the phone number. 778-658-0462, 778 6580462 of course if you went to the blog ami.ca/now the phone number would be there for you too amy let's move from the world of arts to the world of sports it's curling season the vancouver curling is. club is going to be offering up some blind curling this year so what are they putting on offer for the blind curlers you know, blind curling has been a really popular thing here in Vancouver for years. Of course, went on hiatus during the pandemic, as everything did, and now it's coming back. So blind curling is uh, offers a couple of things. It's pretty much exactly the same traditional game of curling, um, except that you have some folks who are uh, there to support um, whether it is um, sweeping or whether it is calling the rocks or whether it is standing at the other end of the house 
and letting you know verbally where all of the rocks are located if you can't see them. There also is an adaptation, which uh, if, you, if you have difficulty getting down on your knees, so it's, it's a wheelchair adaptation, but we use it in blind curling. It's a long stick pole and you can actually attach it to the top of the rock and you can slightly turn it to curl your rock and push it with a stick. So you don't have to do the, the traditional kind of glide thing, which the older we get, I have to tell you, is the, is, it's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, going up and down, not as easy as it used to be. The verticality is sometimes a little bit complicated. Yeah, Amy, I've been uh, really lucky over the years to cover a whole mess yes. of the national championships, the national bonspiels for blind curling. So I've had a chance to meet a bunch of curlers from all over the country who all love it. So how can people potentially sign up or get involved, even if they've never thrown a rock before, but they want to hurry hard to Vancouver hurry Curling hard. Club? Oh, yeah, that's right. You don't need to have ever thrown a rock before. When I started doing uh, blind curling, I just um, I just showed up and was a part of the group. That's some of the beauty of it is that, you know, you're also in with community. And so oftentimes they do a little bit of a lunch beforehand. So if you want to come do that, you pay your 10 bucks, whatever, and they do a little soup and sandwich lunch. But curling happens on Wednesday afternoons from 12 till 2 p.m. at the Vancouver Curling Club. And there is a phone number here, Dave, for people to get in touch with folks. Uh, Carol is a lovely human, and she'll answer any of your questions if you call 604-266-9656. 604-266-9656. Hang out with Carol. Amy mentioned lunch. The reason I like the curlers is for the beer after the games. I like that the <laughs> winning right. team has to buy the losing team a beer. That's a tradition I can get down with as a perpetual sports you, loser. You need to be on a dragon boat team, Dave. <laughs> yeah, but I don't like it. Next well. time you're in Vancouver in the summertime. Hit me up. We'll I, take you on a dragon boat. I, I don't like getting wet. I don't like getting wet. There's the possibility of falling into the water, and that's where the sharks are. Amy, thank It never happens. Amy, thank you for this. Thank you, Dave. That's Amy Amanti with a community report from Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm going to give you that blog address one more time. You know, we did change that on you, too. This is branding that I was able to remember. But ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now, the old blog address I was told you, put that as your homepage. That's your landing page. You open up your Internet Explorer. Well, not Internet Explorer. Internet Edge, or Firefox, or Google Chrome, or Safari. should be your landing page, ami.ca slash now. So the first thing you do is pop in there, and there's information about the stories that we cover on the shows, the links and the phone numbers and the good stuff. Who needs the MSN landing page? I don't even know where Apple takes you when you, when you land in there. I know Firefox takes you to a big Google screen. So to their credit. Sometimes landing on Google is pretty useful. But ami.ca slash now. I'm telling you, you won't regret it if you make that your landing page as soon as you open up your web browser. Let's wrap up the hour by sharing a couple of news stories. I want to share a little bit of sound that came out of the House of Commons yesterday during question period. Let's begin with the federal conservatives demanding the Liberals cancel upcoming increases to employment, insurance and Canada pension plan contributions. Leader Pierre Poiliev says the increases will hurt those who need the most help. It's never the right time to raise taxes on the working poor. And yet that is exactly what the minister admits she will do. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh also had some criticism for the federal government. He was considering the people in Atlantic Canada who are dealing with cell service problems in the wake of Hurricane Fiona. He says this is a telecommunications issue that the government has known about far too long. So when will this government force those companies who are fully regulated by the federal government to put in place the necessary infrastructure so families don't get disconnected ever again? 
Dominic LeBlanc, infrastructure minister, did respond to that earlier in the day. He says there is a role for government oversight to make telecom companies strengthen their networks. We could certainly serve notice on the telephone companies, on the internet service providers, that they are expected to do everything they have to do to ensure redundancies in their systems, to build up the resilience of, in some cases, this infrastructure, because it is now essential for the safety and security of communities. What kind of changes would you want to see to the telecom infrastructure? I'm genuinely curious. I'd like to know. So you should reach out to the show. Send us an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. If you put now with Dave Brown in the subject line, it'll get to us a teensy bit faster maybe by milliseconds, but you know, in this world, speed is everything. You can also find us at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media Inc. on the Gram, or at Accessible Media on TikTok. We're all over the place. We're also old school. We've got a phone number, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Wednesday, September 28th edition of Now with Dave Brown. The year is 2022, and I am Dave Brown. Most days. Some days I'm somebody else. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Arno Kopecki will explore the influence of the Conservative Party's new leader on climate change policies. So we're talking politics and climate change. And Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore will join me for a roundtable discussion on some of the positives and negatives when it comes to accessibility and traveling. Let's begin the hour with the regional news update. Sites in Canada is going to take longer and cost much more than expected. Remediation of the giant mine in Northwest Territories was initially planned to be completed in 2031 and cost roughly a billion dollars. That deadline has now been pushed back to 2038 and a significantly higher price tag will be announced next month. Deputy Director for the project, Natalie Plato, explains what is causing the delay. The biggest problem isn't probably what you think it is. It's not the technology. It is more of the community aspect. We have so many rights holders and stakeholders is making sure they all have a voice and trying to incorporate all their opinions because there's a lot of them. So and just making sure everyone uh, gets to be involved. After the remediation project is complete, 237,000 tons of toxic arsenic waste stored underground at the site is anticipated to require perpetual care. Yellowknife Mayor Rebecca Alti wonders how the old site can be used. Should it be our next industrial park? Should we build houses out there? Or should it be more of a, of a, a park or the next campground? And so we'll see what, what the science shows and what, what standards, but realistically, the, the whole site's not going to be remediated to a residential standard. Over to British Columbia, where about 100 seniors carrying placards rallied outside a vacant Victoria High School located 
near long-term homes to demand the creation of an elder-friendly park space. Terry Dance Benick says the field at the former school could be transformed into a park for seniors to exercise, socialize, and appreciate green space. The, the assumption is that we're old, we're quiet, we're not capable of standing up for ourselves. Well, I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> you know, we are going to be saying what we need and making, making the point clearly. Last week, BC's senior advocate Isabel McKenzie released a report finding BC ranks last amongst provinces and territories in providing key financial support for seniors. Over to the prairies, the Manitoba government has yet to launch a dashboard that tracks surgical and diagnostic procedure backlogs and wait times, despite promising it, would be online this month. The NDP opposition is demanding the government make good on its promise. It has estimated the pandemic backlog for diagnostic procedures and surgeries is more than 102,000. A spokesperson for the provincial government says the dashboard will be launched, quote, in the near future. Over to Ontario, where several Ontario cities say they're dealing with a shortage of lifeguards, which is leading to class cancellations and reduced public swim times. Dan Chenier, manager of Recreation, Cultural and Facility Services at the City of Ottawa, says the shortage is affecting most city pools and has led to the cancellation of some learned swim classes and public swim times. He says qualified supervisory staff have been filling in as lifeguards to help deal with the situation. The City of Toronto and the City of Hamilton say they are also facing a shortage of qualified lifeguards because training programs were paused during the pandemic. And finally, over to Atlantic Canada. Residents in Atlantic Canada are reflecting on the extent of the damage in the region from Fiona. Mitch Jollymore owns businesses along Stanley Bridge's wharf in PEI. He says there was no way to brace for the full magnitude of the storm. We, we spent four days preparing for the storm, or my staff and I. Uh, we had windows, leg bolted closed, and um, it just, you know, you, you, plan, you can't plan for the worst day ever, no matter how well you try. Marvin Graham is the owner of Graham's Deep Sea Fishing in Stanley Bridge. He has been telling visiting politicians there are geographic changes that are leaving the region vulnerable. Well, one thing we've got to get done, so we mentioned it to the Premier too, was that Prime Minister too is that the loose sand dunes, if they keep washing away, that's going to be a wide open hole there for the ocean just come right through. And I don't know what you do then, but that's the first start is out there trying to get the, because a lot of the dunes floated away this time. So we got to save them first and then start in here. That's your look at what's going on in the world of regional news. Let's find out what's happening with sports as we chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, let's start in the world of baseball. Before we talk about the Blue Jays and Yankees locking horns last night, a story about Blue Jays pitcher Alec Manoa caught your attention. He won himself a sportsmanship award. He did. And this was in, uh, if I can say, in reaction to him uh, defending his teammate Alejandro Kirk, who is one of the catchers for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, after criticism that Alejandro received rounding a base, he received $100,000 Canadian um, for his sportsmanship award, and he donated most of this, all of this, excuse me, to charity. And 
I, I'm okay with him getting a sportsmanship award. Brock, Dave. Brock, I've got I've got to pause you for one second here because we need to describe what the criticism was of Alejandro Kirk. There was a Montreal sports radio host, Matthew Ross, who claimed because Alejandro Kirk is overweight and rounded the bases too slowly that it was quote a disgrace to baseball. Sorry, I didn't mean to stop you there. I just want to make sure everybody's on the same footing and understands what we're talking about. Yes, apologies. I should have. Uh, elaborated just slightly further. Um, yeah, I'm okay with him getting a sportsmanship award. I, I, I just questioned the um, giving him a monetary value. I think Alejandro Kirk did the right thing by defending his teammate in saying, "Look, he, he's he's you know a good guy. He's good baseball mind. All of those things." And I've received sportsmanship awards for things that I've done in sports, and I never received a monetary value for it. I never would have expected to receive it. I think that a sportsmanship should be recognized for the act in which you are being a good sport, and it shouldn't come with a dollar value of, listen, uh, here's here's money. And like I said, he did the right thing. I just question, why are we giving a dollar value for someone who feels in their right to defend a teammate when they need to. Like like you said, the monetary value for doing a good deed, especially for a professional athlete, even if Alec Manoa ended up giving it to charity, it's just the kind of situation where it doesn't quite ring the same way, right? That Alec Manoa defending Alejandro Kirk and saying, listen, as an overweight guy as well, I don't think that overweightness or, or body, si- body size is what matters on a baseball diamond. I think that that was the right message. I absolutely agree with you. And I'm also fundamentally in agreement with you that a monetary value being given to professional athletes, even if that money does trickle down to charity, seems like a little bit not as beneficial to the overall community of sports. It would be different and better if it was, say, an amateur athlete who was receiving a monetary value or if some of that money was actually being directly invested into grassroots sports programs, uh, maybe the Canadian Tire program. But even then, I'd say there's even more grassroots direct funding that could be given out here to ensure that there's more people involved at the grassroots amateur level of sport receiving that recognition rather than pro athletes who are making either hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars being handed these checks. Yeah, because, again, you cannot always assume, Dave, that even though the right decision was made in everyone's mind here, in that the money went to charity, you can't always assume that every individual is going to do the same thing. He, he, he got the monetary value. It was not you know, designated for this has to go here. He made the choice. And I think some people, whether it's athletes, whether it's anybody, may not make the same decision, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. And I just think it just screams yuck to me. And I mean, I got a sportsmanship award uh, once in my career that I can think of where this individual really, really struggled. And he had a, a perfect ball. I think I was leading like nine or 10, nothing at the time. And he got a perfect ball and uh, it, it was the last end of the game and he got the perfect ball. And I decided to give him the point because that's just what I felt to do as a human being. And I did end up getting a sportsmanship award. I was not expecting it. I would have done the same thing 10 times over, even if I didn't get a physical award on it. But I just think as we repeated, the monetary value is kind of 
kind of. It's yeah, it's, it's an ick feeling to me. It it just rubs it a little bit the a little bit the wrong way. But still, all all the credit in the world to Alec Manoa for uh, standing up for his guy and Christian Kirk. I don't care if he's one of the big boy, one of the big boned boys like me. He's uh, doing it. He's doing it for us chubby guys, hitting the ball real well all years. Twenty four year old as well. Alejandro Kirk, deceptively young deceptively young. Brock, let's talk about the Jays more generally because it was a disappointing night in a lot of ways at the Rogers Center last night. Number one, the Jays lose. Number two, Aaron Judge just kept getting walks. It was Looney Dog night though, so the fans did leave home providing they're not kosher. Yes, I I do agree that it was a struggle night. I wrote some notes here and, and the first thing I said is Jose Barrios had yet again another struggle. His last few starts have felt the same the same way. He's kind of had some struggles during the game and, and losing a bit of control, not finding his command, all those things. But I also want to caution you and the audience and remember that everyone's going through some hurricane uh, trouble with Fiona and what's going on there. And he's, he's directly affected with that. And so that can play on someone's mind and 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 i think that that's part of it but again as an athlete you kind of have to learn to turn it off sort of and and leave your personal life at the door but when something like this tragedy happens in your home and native land it it can be troubling to turn it off so i kind of give barrios a little bit of a pass he was very quiet yesterday in the media it was kind of a loss for words kind of looked you know, on his face, even facial expressions kind of looked a bit lost. And so I do have concerns. Tonight's matchup is uh, Garrett Cole versus Mitch White. I'm kind of concerned about that one. Garrett Cole is obviously the better pitcher on paper. And so we'll see what the Blue Jays can muster up tonight. But I do have concerns that they dropped that one last night and could very well drop the one tonight as well. Yeah, they're still they're still where they want to be in the grand scheme of things with about a week left in the season. But it's just it's just that after that great emotional win on Monday night in, in extra innings, you were just hoping it's it's been the story all year, Brock. They're just having trouble building momentum. Yeah, it, it, it is because it's like when they win, you think, oh, yes, we're doing well, we're doing good, everything's going well. And then the next night, it's like, what happened to this team? It's like Jekyll and Hyde, and they're making errors, and, th- and they're errant throws, and Vladimir Guerrero's got to look like Go-Go Gadget at first base. And, you know, it's just things from, from one day to the next. We're seeing such a different team, and you need that consistency going to the playoffs because the teams you're going to face are going to be consistent and you have to match that and and be one step ahead of them hey brock we got to get out of here but thank you for your insight on the sports today we'll catch up with you again tomorrow we'll talk hockey and we'll preview the thursday night football game we will indeed looking forward to it yeah, thanks Dave. I'm, I'm gonna let you talk maple leafs tomorrow we're, we're gonna we're gonna open up we're gonna open up the safe and let you get your maple leafs thoughts out i'll let you talk dolphins so we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah, be good we'll, we'll keep it even good. yeah we'll keep yeah. it even hey brock thanks buddy Thank you. That's Brock Richardson. He is the host of The Neutral Zone, which you can find on AMI-audio. You can find the podcast, or you can also find the YouTube podcast for that one as well. Just search for The Neutral Zone or find AMI's YouTube page by searching for it on YouTube. There's a search bar. makes it easy. Let's head over to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and 21 is the high. 
In Charlottetown, PEI, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of rain this afternoon, and 21 is also the high there. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds and possible rain later, with 18 being the high. In Quebec City, Quebec, same thing as mainly cloudy, with possible rain this morning in a high of 17. In Toronto, Ontario, cloudy with a chance of showers this morning, and 15 is the high. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's cloudy again with possible rain this morning, but it does become a mix of sun and clouds later, and the high is 11. Out in Brandon, Manitoba, it's sunny this morning, but it then turns into a mix of sun and cloud with the possibility of rain and potentially thunderstorms. 22 is the high. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 28. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's a hot one. It's sunny with a high of 33. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's sunny as well, but the high is 27. In Whitehorse, Yukon, it's sunny up north as well, but 11 is the high. In Kelowna, BC, it's mainly cloudy and hazy with a high of 25. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers this afternoon in the high of 18. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we'll talk about the intersection of politics and climate change with journalist Arno Kopecki. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. You have surely noticed that I talk about the climate crisis and climate events pretty much every single day on the show, but I do it through a news lens. I let you know what's happening and how people are responding. There is some broader context missing. I'm not quite capable of connecting all those dots for you. However, one of our new columnists is... Arno Kobecki is a journalist and the author of The Environmentalist's Dilemma. Hey, Arno, great to chat with you once again. Thank you for making time to join us. Thanks for having me. It is great to be here. So let's start in the realm of politics. The Federal Conservative Party has chosen a new leader. It's Pierre Polyevre. How do you suspect his selection may influence environmental policy within that party? Well, the short answer is uh, terribly <laughs> um, Pierre Polyev sort of represents the the coming to power of a movement within the Conservative Party that really sees any attempt at environmental preservation as an assault on the well-being of Canadians. Um, that's not entirely new. I mean, there was a time when the Conservative Party uh, was aligned with environmental conservation. Uh, Viewers and listeners of a certain age may recall uh, a time when the world was worried about the ozone layer, and this was back in the 80s, and it was the Conservative Party of Canada under Brian Mulroney that spearheaded uh, this global movement that that uh, that became the Montreal Protocol to ban CFCs and, and really save the, the, uh, the ozone layer and <laughs> save the world. But under Stephen Harper, uh, 
uh, and the 10 years of his government, they, the Conservative Party aligned itself with the oil sands and, and big oil and resource extraction generally, and they just declared war on the environmental movement. Um, you know, they clear-cut uh, all environmental regulations across the board in this country, launched audits of environmental organizations. And, you know, Pierre Polyev was a cabinet minister in that government. And 10 years later, now he has come to power and really has ratcheted up that kind of rhetoric and thinking. I was at the first uh, leadership debate in, in Edmonton, and it was quite something to behold, you know, uh, the, everybody on stage except Jean Charest was basically, you know, literally they were talking about not letting eco-terrorists uh, cancel the oil industry. And, you know, they were going to, and Pierre Polyev famously has promised to build pipelines in all directions. Um, and really, you know, uh, Pierre Polyev is very good at that kind of language. People are, this is a time when, of course, inflation is exploding. Uh, there's just a ton of uncertainty and, and sort of fear of, of what's coming around the corner and the environment and the environmental movement uh, makes a pretty convenient scapegoat because it does raise the cost of living a little bit to not just plunder the earth. Mm. Uh, in the short term, it, it raises costs. Of course, I would argue that plundering uh, our resources the way we have been for a couple of centuries now is part of the reason why we're living in the midst of, a, of, a, of an explosion of cost of living. Let but that's, that's Pierre Polyev. Let, let's talk about the extraction side. I think we're really good about talking about and covering pipelines, whether it be expansions to the west or Enbridge to the east. Maybe I'm digging too deep here, but how is mining for critical minerals factored into environmental policy lately? And pardon the pun. No, you are. You, I'm a, I'm a dad, Dave. So you can pun anytime you want. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So. You know, mineral mining, to the extent that the Conservative Party under Polyev has an environmental policy, which they don't, all he's really said that he would do is axe the carbon tax. But mining for minerals really is uh, the closest thing they have to one. They, they have they have said, uh, various factions of the party have said, well, look, there there is money to be made in EV technology and in electric vehicles and this wave of, 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 of electric cars and electrification. And that, and of course, Canada ha is a mining superpower. Uh, so we have lithium deposits all across the country, really, that are almost completely untapped. Canada is not uh, present on the world stage when it comes to mining the, the materials that are needed for these electric vehicles. And the Conservatives are definitely open to, uh, you know, exploring that option. But Canada has been pretty behind the ball. Uh, Quebec is the one province that has. That has done some good things. They, you know, they've invested a couple of billion dollars to to fast track some battery assembly plants for these things and get some of these mining deposits going. Ontario uh, has spoken a lot. There's the famous Ring of Fire in the north of the of Ontario, where there's a ton of uh, all kinds of, of precious metals, but especially including lithium. Uh, but it's really remote, and so there's no roads to get there. So it's right now there's zero infrastructure, and it takes years to develop that kind of infrastructure to get those precious metals into the market. And so, uh, this, you know, Canada is now waking up to that. The federal government under the Liberals have also uh, promised a couple of billion dollars to, to fast track this and industry is interested. So everybody's talking about it, uh, but we're, it's pretty slow in, 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 in the works. 
Arno, I've got a question here about political messaging and climate change, but I, I have to confess to you, it took me about 45 minutes to pick the wording on this so carefully because uh, like, I, I just think there's, there's sort of a lot of nuance into it. So here's what I eventually settled on. Is it easier for politicians to message cavalier climate policy when there aren't immediately recent domestic climate catastrophes occurring. And of course, even the premise of my question no longer works after Fiona, the hurricane ravaged parts of Atlantic Canada. But can you indulge me in the theoretical of that question? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're saying is, you know, if there's not a massive environmental catastrophe, is it easy for politicians to ignore uh, the state of the environment and, and just, you know, promote business, business, business? You know, I, I think the traditional answer, which certainly what I've always thought is, is you're right. Um, climate change was not really in the top five voter concerns in Canada or almost anywhere else until the last five years, when we have just been getting hammered year after year by forest fires and massive floods and droughts and all of these things. And it has suddenly impacted our you know, it has jumped out of the screen and into our lives, I would say. I live in British Columbia, and last fall, we just, we got these atmospheric rivers that shredded our highways and our infrastructure. It mm. cost us $2 billion. That was after a summer of, of heat waves and heat domes. Um, so that kind of thing really, I think, forces politicians to engage with, with this uh, because the public is concerned. And now we've just had a summer that, like you say, was relatively benign in Canada around climate change. And I think that really helped Pierre Polyev not have to, he didn't have a climate policy or anything like that. And it makes it easy. You know, I think, I think we're, we're human and the electorate tends to focus uh, on immediate concerns. Mm. I will say though, uh, uh, that I think, so as you say, Fiona just happened yesterday in the House of Commons. Uh, Rosemary Falk, who's an MP, a conservative MP from Saskatchewan, stood up in question period and, and denounced the carbon tax, saying literally, why hasn't the, why didn't the carbon tax stop Hurricane Fiona? And so I think that you're going to see that kind of logic coming from the conservatives, which just really reminds me of, of, of the anti-vax movement and how they say, well, how come people who have been vaccinated can still get COVID-19? So much for that theory, um, you know, and I think we're going to see some of the same stuff going forward around climate change and other environmental considerations where they say, well, we, you know, you spent all this money to try to stop this global problem and it didn't stop this global problem that's been building for 50 years. So uh, forget it. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. You used the word uh, benign to describe the climate situation in Canada over the summer. Yeah, I think you said relatively benign, which I think, again, that's that's you and me trying to, like, pick our words so yeah, carefully because we know that. Yeah, relatively. It's relativity within the relativity. But as we look abroad, there were some really jarring climate events around the world Absolutely. this summer. Off the top of my head, flooding in Pakistan at one point, almost, what, 40% of the country was underwater. There was drought yeah. in parts of Africa and China, significant drought. A massive heat wave in Europe, no shortage of wildfires, drought or flooding in North America as well, particularly on the U.S. side. As you reflect on the last few months, were there any of, of those that were particularly notable to you? Sure. I think you named the big ones. I think Pakistan is really the scale of that. I, I don't think it has sunk into people who are not paying close attention. Like you said, almost half the country has been kicked out of their homes. It's underwater. Uh, and that that is putting into place that you know winter is now coming and that country is just 
the 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 scale of catastrophe I, I think is really unprecedented, and that is you know basically the Himalayan glaciers melted and and drowned that country um, in a very short order. Another one that really stood out, you know, the European heat wave uh, that dried up massive rivers like the you know famous rivers like the Danube and the Rhine. Uh, there was this famous moment when uh, a rock, a big boulder, was revealed in the Rhine River uh, that said, "If you can see this." weep uh, because in historical times when the water levels got that low famine was around the corner uh, so taken all together exactly as you say you know canada was very relatively spared from the worst of climate change this year uh, but the rest of the world was absolutely not it was a horrendous uh, track record of, of climate impacts and and i think we're we're about to see some of the impacts of, of what you know winter is now coming Food is going to be a real issue, and I think in Europe, where they are, you know, they're already dealing with the outcome of the war in Ukraine and, and Putin shutting off oil and gas reserves. So they're going to have this uh, very, very intense energy crunch during winter that is going to coincide with a food crunch because many of the food-producing regions of the world uh, have have just been, you know, they've had some of the worst harvests in in recent memory. Yeah, so, the the UN uh, going to get real. The UN's been sounding the alarm in regards to the famine situation, particularly in East Africa, the last couple of days. But we know it's a situation that's in, impacting places all around the world. In fact, even in yeah. China, a lot of that drought they had it, it hurt a lot of their food-producing regions as well, and that's you know a couple billion people who uh, are fed from that bread belt. So there's a lot to be concerned about on the global food supply. But Arno, you also mentioned the energy side of this conversation. So let's go back. Let's circle back to where we started here, and that's political policy. As we find ourselves at a time of energy supply questions, and let's call them price fluctuations, what do you make of some of the incongruence in the conversation around renewable energy versus fossil fuel producers trying to increase production? Absolutely. So, you know, uh, it is really, it's kind of a mind warp here when people say, look, energy is so expensive, there's this huge energy crunch. So, of course, the solution should be to build more pipelines and get more oil and gas into the market so that energy becomes cheap again. And certainly that is Pierre Polyev's and the conservative answers. Uh, I think it is notable that when the German president came to visit Canada, I believe it was in August, he was not asking about how can we get more natural gas or oil to Germany? He was asking about how can we get hydrogen to Germany and, and specifically green hydrogen. Um, the Europeans are extremely aware that uh, relying on oil and gas from foreign sources is their problem right now. And they're also extremely aware with the recent droughts and drying up of all their rivers that climate change is also a huge problem. And the way to kill both of those birds with one stone is is to get off of fossil fuels and to invest heavily in renewable clean energy sources and that is exactly what Europe is doing this summer and and Putin's war in Ukraine has just insanely fast tracked uh, European climate policy and got and is really getting them to uh, you know focus all hands on deck on getting clean energy to power their cities and their industries and so that's not going to happen in the very short term it wouldn't happen you can't build a, a hydrogen or sorry, a, a natural gas and oil supply to Europe any quicker than you can build clean energy. Uh, both of those things take years. So there's no short term solution other than really buckling down and, and conserving as much energy as mm. you can. And that's that's what they're doing. And that's reverberating, I think, around the world, uh, of course, in places that produce oil and gas like Canada and the United States. 
there is an immense amount of, of industrial and political backlash against that notion and people with vested interest and money to make are saying, no, 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 no. The answer to all of this is to build more uh, infrastructure for oil and gas. And let's let's tack it on some carbon capture. You know, they sort of acknowledge, they wink at, at climate change in there, but mostly they're concerned about let's make money because there's money to be made. And look, there's an oil crunch. Uh, so let there's an energy crunch. So we've got the energy. I think it's really notable that in the United States where they just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that is, uh, you know, the the world's biggest investment in, in clean energy and 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 climate combating uh, policy that that has that has ever happened, and that the name of that act, the Inflation Reduction Act, is is no mistake. They're they're specifically saying, you know, if we get off oil and gas and invest in clean energy, life will become cheaper. And recent studies have shown that uh, the war in Ukraine, that that in the, this inflation crisis that we're going through right now. 41% of that is because of the price of oil has has shot through the roof like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so as long as we're depending on oil and gas, we are vulnerable to these supply crunches and these spikes and these the vagaries of the price of oil, which are not new. These, these this has been happening for decades. Arno, we have to get out of here, but you mentioned you enjoy a good dad joke. So because we covered such yeah. heavy ground, let me finish Hit on me something up. lighter here. I asked a date to meet me at the gym. She never showed up. That's how I knew we'd never work out. Ah, oh, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> that's that poetry in motion. That's 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 why you're sitting in the chair you're sitting that's in. That's why that's that. why they pay me the moderate bucks. Arno, thank you for this. I'm so excited to have you as a regular contributor on the show. Me too, Dave. Thanks so much. That was great. That's Arno Kopecki, a journalist and the author of The Environmentalist's Dilemma. Coming up next, Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore will be here. We'll discuss some of the positive and negative experiences when it comes to accessibility when traveling. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. There is a spectrum when we talk about travel troubles. There are the mild inconveniences, a slight delay, some slow service, maybe sitting next to me on the plane. There are also absolute horror stories. For example, the stories we share about airlines destroying or losing wheelchairs. It's not all about negativity, though, because sometimes travel goes silky smooth and the experience ends up being invigorating and fills you with positivity. Let's say hello to Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore to discuss this a bit further. Hey, Jenny, I'm going to say hello to you first here. And just right off the top, I just want to ask you how you and your friends and family are doing around the Halifax area after the storms over the weekend. Well, things are still a little bit messy. I appreciate you checking in. But uh, my neighborhood, my family, we are all safe and sound. There are a lot of down trees in the area, but... We're safe. You might hear some chainsaws in the background at some point. Things are being cut up and hauled away, but otherwise we're safe. Very good to hear. Thank you for uh, checking in with us there on that one, Jenny. And Megan Gilmore, we also say hello to you. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm Hi, well. Jenny. When there's another tornado in Ottawa, we'll ask you what you're doing in regards to that. But Megan, let's start with you. You told us a story on air last week about a difficult train journey. We really had to rush you. So can you tell the story for me again? Sure. So last week I was traveling from where I live now in Ottawa to like Southwestern Ontario for some speaking engagements and some work things. 
So on Monday, I was scheduled to take the 537 train from Union Station in Toronto to Ottawa. And so I arrived at Union Station probably around five o'clock or just before there because I was traveling in from Hamilton. It was a longer story. And I was standing in line for my train and the via rail attendant asked me if I wanted to do pre-boarding. So I don't usually, because I'm a last minute planner, I don't usually call ahead and say, hey, I need pre-boarding. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll take pre-boarding if you have it. And they told me to go sit in the alcove to the right of where everybody boards for their trains and that's where they'll find me for pre-boarding um the way it works in union is there's just like one big hole and that's where you all line up for your different trains so i was sitting there waiting slightly anxiously uh via rail staff member comes up to me says oh yeah like i haven't forgotten about you i'll come and i'll take you they take me up i get on my train um i find the seat by myself very proud of me um and i'm sitting there and a gentleman comes up to me and says you're sitting in my seat and i was like uh no i'm not uh so anyways long story short he looks at my ticket it's like hey you're on the train heading to windsor Mm. which is southern part of ontario like detroit border i need to go to ottawa which is in eastern ontario uh so he and the lady across the aisle helped me off of my train in time to see the 537 train headed to ottawa leave union station uh, and I got like, just like bumped to first class and put on the 6:30 train. There is one more train that yeah. leaves for Ottawa yeah. that's at 6:30. So thank God I hadn't like booked that train ticket. And uh, you know, a free meal, but still a pretty horrible day and a pretty horrible feeling. Uh, I've not. <laughs> yeah, the meal's another story, but that's I, not the point of this panel. I I've not had necessarily a poor experience tied so directly to inaccessibility when I travel. But I'll tell you this: when I've had a couple long delays that involved having an overnight stay at an airport hotel uh, due to cancellations and delays. That can really fire up the stress meter inside me. One, can I find the hotel? Where's the bus picking me up to take me to the hotel? Can I walk to the hotel? What's going on? Something I haven't planned for, something I don't know. It really raises my hackles. Now, again, that's not directly in accessibility, but as someone who's legally blind, it definitely adds a couple road bumps to me getting around. Jenny, what about you? Have you had any, had any, had any really gnarly travel troubles? Have I had any? I have a long list and we don't have time, but I will tell you probably the gnarliest. Many, many years ago, I was traveling. I think I was moving back home after finishing up college in Toronto. So I was moving from Toronto back to Moncton. And I one leg of the trip was on one of these smaller planes. And it was the type of plane where you don't walk right onto it from the airport. You walk onto, I think it's called the tarmac. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you got that, yeah. All right, right on. So it was the type of plane where I knew by the model of the plane when I was booking it that I would have to walk out onto the tarmac. And I was traveling alone, so I was really not comfortable with the thought of that. It was daytime, it might be sunny, I I don't want to get lost on a tarmac. So I self-identified, as I usually do, especially when I travel alone. When I book my ticket, I said I'm visually impaired. And and, and I I stipulated quite clearly when I checked in that I would need help getting from the airport, like some a sighted guide, out to the plane. So I didn't get lost on the tarmac. Well, I'm standing there watching all of the other folks board, 
and it looks like everyone has left the gate and the door to the gate where you can see out onto the tarmac is still open and I'm like looking around frantically look trying to look as lost as possible so someone will come to my aid because I'm not seeing any staff people anywhere and to my horror I see I can see far enough that I can see like it looks like the plane is closing up. <laughs> so I'm like, this plane's going to leave without me. So being the person that I am, I just ran around the gate <laughs> frantically looking for anybody who looked like they possibly worked at the airport. And luckily I found someone who worked for the airline I was traveling with and they had to open up the plane and I and and escort me on there as they should have done to begin in the with. In first but place, yeah. It was so embarrassing. Like I I had all these people presumably assuming I delayed the you know I delayed them. They had closed up the plane and yeah. here comes this lady. So it was it was horrifying. I think in all three cases that we're identifying, it comes with some embarrassment as a result of people who said they were going to offer some support really had a major shortcoming there. So it's not to put the onus back on us because it looks like in all cases we self-identified in some way, shape, or form along the way. But Megan, I'm curious if this poor experience or if any previous poor experiences have presented what I would call a learning opportunity. Sure, I've been thinking about that a lot because up until my experience last week, I have always received excellent service when I travel on via rail and I brag about it to my friends and I tell them that they should come with me because I will make sure you get excellent service. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, so thought about how I would like to communicate my situation to the company and what they need to do differently. One of the things has to do with something that you and I talked about last week, Dave, has to do with... Um, where, uh, where, like in my case, trains, the stations that they use. So at Union Station, I don't think I saw any sign telling me which L Cove was the pre-boarding one for my specific train. Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. thought you could sit at any of them. Like nobody told me where I was supposed to specifically sit. Um, so that's one of the things I've thought about is just how little communication there can be about where I need to be to have the people whose job it is to help me to have them be able to do their job the best that they can do. Mm. Um, that That's something I've learned. Um, right now, to be honest, I do not want pre-boarding on my next train ride coming out of Toronto. Out of Ottawa, it's fine. Smaller station, less people. But I think next time I just might stand in line with yeah. everybody in Toronto. Once, once you're happily in line and and you're there, it's like, well, if I provided I follow the person in front of me, I'm gonna get where right. I have to go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Jenny, what about you? I know there's only so much you can do in the situation that you described, but did it present some kind of learning opportunity? I think what I've learned is you you can plan and plan and do everything right. But when you're traveling, you always have to anticipate that something might go sideways. Um, and and I think the other thing that I've learned, this may not be constructive, is that we have to keep giving feedback when these things happen, whether it's the airline or whatever company is providing the travel, because we need to hold them accountable and everyone needs to learn from that poor experience that mm -hmm. we had. So it's not necessarily taking to Twitter or ranting and raving. It's, it's, Hey, this happened and this was really not a good experience. I don't want to have to run and tell everyone about this negative experience. So let's make it right next time. Mm -hmm. um, but just anticipating that things might go sideways, even if we're doing everything right. And people are human. I'm sure they didn't 
in, intend to leave me there and, you know, make me almost miss my flight, but it happened. And, and we need to do better. I think just, we just need to be accountable for, we, we, we need to hold people accountable. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I definitely, in my Newark airport experience, I definitely sent them a very constructive email to American airlines after, uh, I really gave them a couple opportunities to be like, Oh, he self-identified a bunch of times and explained that he felt unsafe walking to the hotel. And yet we still just shoved him onto the streets of Newark, but, uh, neither here nor there guys, let's not dwell on negativity because sometimes when we talk about these things, the negativity can take over as opposed to some positivity. I'll tell you last time I left this continent and went to the old world and traveled to Europe in 2005, I did self-identify well in advance because I was going to be taking a transfer in Paris. And if you guys have ever been to Charles de Gaulle airport, it's a, uh, it's large, it's a big airport. So in the end, Air France was spectacular in the way that they dealt with me, particularly in regard to some orientation at de Gaulle. They ended up doing the thing that I spoke to Amy Amanti about in the last hour of the show where they asked, listened, and acted. So a lot of times when you're talking about an accessibility accommodation getting off a plane, they'll tell you to sit in your seats like all the way until the end, and then you'll sort of be the last thought to be taken where you have to go. When they figured out that I didn't have necessarily a mobility concern, they said, hey, get off the plane whenever you want to, and the person is going to be... The person who's going to help guide you through the Gaulle Airport is going to be waiting at the desk. It's going to be waiting at the gate desk. And all you've got to do is say, hey, I'm Dave Brown, and they'll they'll escort you through. And that's what they did in De Gaulle. That's what they did for me in Manchester when I landed a little bit later in Manchester. And the person, like, walked me explicitly to where I had to go. But also as we were going through the walk, we were chatting and bonding as humans. They asked me if I was hungry, if I wanted to stop for food, did I want a bottle of water, did I need gum? It was all of those little things that you'd think is, like, the basic fundamental services. But it made the experience so pleasant and wonderful that it just got my vacation off to the right kind of start. So, Megan, starting with you positive experiences sure so most of my experiences when i fly have been similar to yours dave in that there's people who walk me to where i need to go and we have pleasant conversations shout out to air north the yukon's airline they're great when you go to whitehorse fly air north um but this past summer i flew to whitehorse and as we all know this summer was a crazy time for airport travel i spent an hour in line in pearson from 4 30 in the morning to like no from like 3 30 in the morning to 4 30 something crazy like that only to get to the front of the line and realize that i was in the wrong airlines line oh my gosh and i couldn't see yeah i couldn't see the airline sign so i thought i was it was terrible and i'm like oh my gosh like my plane is leaving and like just over an hour and i just blurted out like and i have a cane with me but i'm just blurting out like i'm legally blind and i need help and then somebody came and they're like we're on this and they had me through security at WestJet in probably under 10 minutes nice Nice. Yeah. The beauty and power of self-identification and somebody actually knowing what that means and actually acting upon it. Uh, Jenny, what about you? Positive experiences. Well, mine was really recent, too, and really similar to you, Dave, where when I recently traveled to, to Montreal, I wasn't traveling alone. I did have a sighted guide with me. But right after we sat down, a flight attendant came up to me. And, and I should say this was Air Canada. Surprise, I have something nice to say about Air Canada. <laughs> um, they The flight attendant came right up to me, and I can't recall the exact words that they used, but they asked me the first thing they 
they did was asked me to describe um, and help them sort of understand not only how I saw what I could see, but what level of support I might need. Usually it's they come up and it's bleh, like, here's all the information for you. Here's how I can help you, blah, blah, blah. I see that you self-identified, you're visually impaired. Um, it was just really refreshing to have that opportunity to say, I don't really need XYZ assistance, but hey, if there's an emergency, we're not going to want to rely on me um, to be helping anybody navigate this plane or open anything up, et cetera. So it was just real, that was really super refreshing. And I've had a lot of really good experiences like you, Megan, with Via Rail. Uh, I, I can't recall a bad experience ever with them, especially when I've self-identified um, and, and traveling alone. Another quick instance was an airline lost my luggage once, and when I made it clear to them that I needed my luggage for a goalball tournament, they were all over it, nice. and they got that luggage to me at my hotel um, just in time to play. So that was a really nice one, too. I think that was Air Canada as well. So, you know, two two positive points for Air Canada today. We're a wildly tight for time here, guys, so I have to hold you to one quick thought on this one, sort of 30 seconds or so, but is there anything you do to try and make your travel life easier? For me, the Newark experience really scarred me, so now I actually look at hotels at uh, around airports that I'm going to be transferring through just in case, so I can give myself some pre-orientation, and I also intentionally give myself very long layovers, but Megan, what about you? Long layovers are important. I think a lot about how to keep myself happy while I travel. So like the right books, the right snacks. And I am a person who washes my bed sheets at home before I leave and I make my bed. So that I when do I come that home. Too. Yeah. You guys are geniuses. Yeah, I'm taking notes. It's a great idea. To, it's because you've been sleeping in hotel beds for a couple of days. So maybe you're going to sleep in a, you know, freshly cleaned bed when you get home. Jenny, what about you? Okay, maybe not super practical, but if you're someone who's blind or visually impaired, pump yourself up, talk yourself up. You deal with a world that is not really designed for us. For It's designed for people who can see well. Um, so if you find yourself in a weird predicament, a gnarly predicament, to use Dave's word, you, you can do it. You know, you'll find your way out of a challenge because you do it every single day. You navigate this crazy world every day. So talk yourself up, pat yourself on the back. Right on. Hey, Jenny. Megan, thank you both for this. Jenny, have a great day. And Megan, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye. That's Thanks, Megan. Bye. That's bye. Megan Gilmore, the host of Connecting Disability Podcast. Jenny Bovard is the host of the Low Vision Moments Podcast. Coming up after the break, we'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon on AMI-audio. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The mighty airwaves of AMI-audio are going to be bumping at 2 p.m. this afternoon when Kelly and company hits them. Let's bring in the co-host of that show, Ramya Amuthan, to find out what's coming up. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Ramya, you were in the building yesterday. You were in Studio 5. You were sitting in my yes. chair, which is fine. Yes. I don't mind. I like sharing. Sharing yeah, is okay. caring. Okay. I peered through the production window, but old Legally Blind Dave and combined with the lights that are on in here, I couldn't tell. Was your dog with you yesterday? Mm -hmm. He was. I'm surprised you didn't look in at a time where he was 
uh, whining and wanting to go outside and be with all you guys. <laughs> he was uh, seemingly very happily asleep on the floor, but I was very upset that I didn't get some doggo snuggles I yesterday. I was very disappointed in you. I almost said we're not going to do a Kelly Co. <laughs> handoff today. And then wow. I was also contemplating how unprofessional it would be if I'd burst into the room in the middle of the show, and I decided that would be very unprofessional. Yeah, but you should have done it anyways because <laughs> Glizzy was so upset. I'm not kidding. He yesterday ha was having tantrum after tantrum because he just doesn't understand why he can't be out for yeah, those two hours. Yeah, there are yeah. stuffed animals around the office that he could try and steal. Absolutely. His favorite <laughs> part about coming to the office. Yeah. Either, look, either watching us eat or stealing stuffed animals. It's very, <laughs> very uh, focused by the old Gliz master. Uh, Ramya, what's coming up on the show today? Okay, we have In the Know with Margaret Weldon, and she's sharing tips for travel readiness and taking us through picking the right backpack, Dave. There's oh, yeah. lots to learn yeah, about yeah, picking yeah. backpacks. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm looking forward to this one. Anyways, the University of Manitoba has announced their latest writer-in-residence, and Jim Crisco is going to share more about what that is and who got picked. And we're also talking uh, about Luxterna. This is a gene therapy that's been approved by... Um, uh, Health Canada, uh, but there's still a lot of support needed to get it approved around our provinces and paid for by people who need them. So President and CEO of Fighting Blindness Canada, Doug Earl, is joining us to give us the updates. Yeah, it's always great catching up with Doug. He's always got the great inside scoop on those stories. And the external one is a really interesting one in regard to inherited, yes. uh, inherited eye diseases. Ramya, it's funny that Margaret's talking about travel with you today because we've been talking about travel quite a bit on the show today. I agree with Margaret. The bags you pick are going to make your life a million times easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have four backpacks uh, at home. I'm a pretty big backpack person <laughs> and everything has its purpose. Like I would never take this one to work because it requires this. And I would never take this one to soccer practice because it can't hold this. You know right, what I mean? Right. Yeah. I've actually, I'm actually in the market for a new one. I've had the same backpack since the fall of 2006. So I'm thinking after 16 years, maybe it's time to get a new one, but it's one of these yeah. things. It's not broken. So why am I going to replace it? Just because it's like a little bit dirty. What does that matter? You don't have it because mom said so? Because my mom, every time she sees a backpack, is like, you need to throw this out. You've had this Jansport for the last 25 years. I don't understand. <laughs> look at it. I know you can't see it, but look at it. <laughs> there would also be people who would tell us as we, well, in your case, you're younger, but me as I approach my 40s, they would say, maybe a satchel. Maybe it's time to move to a satchel uh, or a shoulder bag. But I can't carry beer home in a shoulder bag. Uh, Ramya, no. I, I got to get out of here. We're going to hit the heart out. But have a great day and have a great show. Thanks, Dave. That's, See you later. That's Ramya. I'm within the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. We're out of time today. We'll be back again tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.